listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. going to take a break from our series on 1st John, which we've been in for the last seven or eight weeks, and we're going to focus instead on the Reformation, because today is Reformation Sunday. So we are going to be in the book of Romans. Now, the Reformation is this really important time, particularly those who are from a Reformation church, like ourselves, uh, for a number of reasons, but this is the, the time when we celebrate and remember uh, this period of history that began, we often say it began in 1517 when Martin Luther pounded his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. And oftentimes when we think about the Reformation, it gets this bad rap as if the Reformation was a time when people claimed to discover a bunch of brand new things for the very first time. But in fact, what was happening is that these truths were rediscovered by going back to the Bible, by going back to the original languages, by, in fact, going back to the early church fathers as well. So it's not a, a discovery of new things, it is a, a rediscovery. And a lot of fundamental truths were rediscovered. We're going to talk about one of those truths today. So our text this morning comes from the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 19 through 28. And I'll ask you to rise for the reading of God's Word. Romans 3, verses 19 through 28. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the, no through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to make a bold claim right off the bat this morning. I think there is one question, one burning question that plagues every single human being. Now, we wouldn't articulate this question maybe in so many words, but nonetheless, it is the driving force between many of our decisions, the way that we live our 
lives. It's at the, the forefront of our brains, this impulse we can't really get rid of. Are you ready for it? Here's the question. Am I enough? Am I enough? In his groundbreaking book, Seculosity, Dave Dahl says this. He says, listen carefully, and you'll hear that word enough everywhere, especially when it comes to the anxiety, loneliness, and exhaustion, and division that plague our moments to such tragic proportions. You will hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. We believe instinctively that were we to reach some benchmark in our minds, then value and vindication and love would be ours. That if we got enough, we would be enough. So what about you? Are you enough? And how do you know? Like, are you a good enough citizen if you, you vote and give to charity? Or also, do you have to volunteer, spend a certain number of hours volunteering in your community? Are you a good enough parent if your kid gets straight A's and participates in sports? Or does there also have to be this massive list of extracurricular activities? And how long does that list have to be, right? Are you a good enough athlete if you win conference? Or do you have to win sections? Do you have to win state or maybe even at the collegiate level? Maybe you have to go all the way to the Olympics. Are you a good enough employee if you faithfully and diligently put in the requisite hours? Or do you also have to participate in the after work networking events? And then sign up to get your, your masters, go on for more schooling, and join Toastmasters just to be safe. Where, where is, when is enough enough, I guess, is, is kind of the question I'm driving at. Am I enough? Now, I cannot think of a better illustration of this than the great British baking show. Anyone else a fan? There we go. There we go. There's a few of you there. Uh, the Chellogs are super fans. This was Halloween a couple years ago. Let's give that a moment to sink in. If you haven't seen it, the Great British Baking Show is basically it's a cooking show, so the contestants bake, and whoever's bake is the best wins. Uh, but it, 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 it takes place in... Great Britain, so it's like an American one, only the contestants are kind of nice to each other, which I think is why we sort of like to watch it. Um, but all these contestants, they spend this time putting their time and their energy and effort into crafting the best bake that they possibly can. And then finally, they have to bring it forward and, and set it down on the, the gingham altar, where the judges, Paul Hollywood and Prue they judge their bake, right? And they're staring at them. And they're, they're looking at them. They look down at the bake and they look at them. And you can see some of these contestants literally like shaking in their shoes. Because the, what are they doing? Well, they're, they're awaiting judgment. They're awaiting that verdict. And they're longing to hear some positive affirmation. What are they wanting to hear? They want to hear, I am enough. 
Am I a good enough baker? Please, 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 please say yes. And then if, if they're lucky, someone might get the coveted Paul Hollywood handshake. I've literally seen people get tears in their eyes when this happens. Am I enough? Friends, the beautiful thing about the Christian faith is that God actually gives us an answer to this question. And what we're talking about today is this little word in Christianese, justification. And it's one of the key doctrines of the Reformation, in fact. Here's a a working definition. If you're not maybe as familiar with this word justification, this comes straight from our catechism. Justification is the gracious act of God by which He, for Christ's sake, acquits me, that is, declares me not guilty, a repentant and believing sinner of my sin and guilt, credits me with Christ's righteousness, and looks upon me in Christ as though I had never sinned. There's a good working definition for you based on what Scripture tells us. And we're going to unpack that little word, justification, today, and we're going to see how it answers the question, am I enough? So, here's a a roadmap for those of you who like roadmaps. We're going with four different parts. Justification is by grace alone, it is through faith alone, it is on account of Christ alone, and it is apart from works. Four points. First off, justification is by grace alone. Now, that little word grace, it gets thrown all over the place, right? So people use it in Christian circles and in non-Christian circles to mean a million different things. What are we talking about with grace? Well, when the Bible talks about grace, here's a good simple working definition. Grace means that God's default attitude toward me is one of love and forgiveness. Can you say that with me? God's default attitude toward me is one of love and forgiveness. God is merciful by nature, slow to anger and abounding in love. Because unlike every other God in every other world religion, the God of the Bible is by nature lovingly inclined toward His creatures. We see this right off the bat in Genesis. And it's in stark contrast to every other creation narrative that came up in other world religions. Because in the Christian story, God loves His creatures and desires to have a relationship with them. When you look at other religions, for example, the Babylonian creation myth, uh, it's all about violence and and bloodshed, that this is how creation came about. But Christianity stands in stark contrast to this. You see, God doesn't make Adam and Eve earn His favor. He, He just gives it to them right off the bat. Grace is gift. It's literally what the word means in the Greek gift. It's utterly undeserved rather than earned. The classic text for this, which you, many of you know, is Ephesians 2.8. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. So when God justifies, when He declares us righteous, it's not because of anything we have done. It's only because of Him and who He is. 
In other words, we could, we could put it this way. Grace doesn't depend upon the worthiness of the recipient, but only upon the heart of the giver. That's important. Grace doesn't depend upon the worthiness of the recipient, but only upon the heart of the giver. That's point number one. Justification is by grace alone. Number two, justification is by grace through faith alone. And what is faith? Again, a slippery term that gets used and co-opted in a million different ways. Well, faith is nothing like Bon Jovi's living on a prayer, right? Like some last-ditch unrealistic pipe dream after all other options have been exhausted. It's not what the Bible means by the word faith. Here's a good working definition of faith. Faith is active trust in God's promises. Can you say that with me? Faith is active trust in God's promises. It's not just mental assent to something in, in the way that I might say, well, I believe or I have faith that 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's not faith in the sense that I, I believe that Canada is north of the United States. It's not faith even in the sense of, I believe I'm going to shoot a 12-point buck next week when I go home to my parents' house. No. Which, please pray for me for that. We'll add that to the prayer requests. But you see, faith isn't just saying to the stuntman, Yes, I believe you can carry me across the waterfall on a tightrope. Faith is saying, yes, I believe you. Now let me get on your shoulders and let you prove it to me. See the difference? Faith is a gift. It's not something we work up within ourselves. In fact, it's not a decision that we make. John 15, 6 is abundantly clear on this. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, you did not choose me. I have chosen you. You didn't choose me. I chose you because if it were left to our sinful selves, we would never choose the things of God. God has to create and sustain faith himself because apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, man, we are just a bunch of spiritually dead corpses headed for the morgue, a.k.a. hell. As John Ortberg says, the quality of your faith doesn't save you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. Here's something important about justification. Jesus has forgiven the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2.2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, but not ours only for the sins of the whole world. But, but the benefits of that forgiveness have to be received individually. Basically, we have to believe it in order to receive it. You think of it that way. Just because Jesus has justified us, that's not license for us to say, sweet, I may as well go out and do some serious sinning if God's all about forgiveness. Show up on Sunday, hear about forgiveness, and now i got a hall pass to do what I want the rest of the week, right? According to Scripture, that's not an option. And in fact, an attitude like that reveals you're still living in rebellion against God. You don't have faith at all. True living faith implies a response on our part. 
It's a little bit like this. Imagine you have a friend who cuts you a massive check. So this is a really, really good friend. You're in debt up to your eyeballs. He cuts you this check, enough to pay off all your debt, but also enough to fill your account so high you're never going to have to work again a day in your life. Okay? Really, really, really good friend. Gives you the check. You're holding that check in your hands. Now, in one sense, you can say, my debt is taken care of. All of my, my debt is taken care of. It has been canceled. Yet, on the other hand, the reality is that in order for your debt to be canceled, for you to receive the benefits of this check, you actually got to sign your name to it, endorse it, and deposit it in the bank. See, Jesus cuts the check for our sins with his own blood. But unless we believe it, it's incomplete. It's justification in name only, which isn't justification at all. So justification happens by grace alone, faith alone, and number three, on account of Christ alone. How can there be more than one alone? Don't ask me. Uh, we can do the math afterwards. <laughs> if you're a mathematician, you've got to kind of turn that part of your brain off. But we can have grace, we can have faith. The thing is, though, faith is always in something. You know, it's some of the dumbest t-shirts I've ever said that just say, have faith. Okay, but in what? <laughs> like, in what? what? What is it you have faith in? Faith has to have an object to cling to. Otherwise, it's just faith for faith's sake. Without Christ and his cross, we have nothing. Actually, less than nothing. We're in the negative. We're those spiritually dead corpses back in the morgue. Here's the thing. We live in a broken world, and I don't need to tell you this because you know it. We live in a broken world, and the Christian word for this is sin. Everywhere we look, Things are not as they should be. We look outside of ourselves. We look inside of ourselves. We see that things are not as they should be. People get cancer and die. Senseless wars claim lives. Farm crises happen. Governments fail. Adultery occurs, racism abounds, families crumble, we lose our tempers, we harbor resentments, even toward those we love the most. The wicked prosper, our bodies and hearts ache and fail us. Why? It always goes back to that ugly little three-letter word, sin. Despite the relentless optimism of our society that human beings are on this upward trending graph and we're little by little getting better and better, the Bible tells us something different. It says we're sinful from birth. See, the out-of-the-box condition of the human heart hasn't changed much in 2,000 years. In the words of Hosea the prophet, we sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. Or as Paul says, the wages of sin is death. 
But because of the cross, because of the refuge of the cross, right? Paul can write the second half of that verse. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Free gift. He paid the price for our sins, dying in our place and rising again in victory over death and Satan and all of the other reasons this world is not as it should be. He forgives us and He promises that He will make all things new. That one day all pain will cease. And that even the memory of the bad we've experienced will cease to exist. Replaced by the shining face of Jesus. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. Finally, number four, it is apart from works. Faith is apart from works, which is just a way of saying, another way of saying it's apart from our own obedience to God's law. Martin Luther, the, the unknown German monk who sparked the Reformation, spent much of his life trying to answer the question, how can I know for certain, because Luther was really concerned, and rightly so with certainty, how can I know for certain that I can stand up before a holy God? How can I know that I can have peace with God? How can I know that I have done enough? Right, we're back to that question at the beginning. Have I done enough, and how do I know when I've done enough? And in Luther's time, people were doing everything that they could, everything that the church asked them to do to try to earn God's favor. The church became kind of a spiritual gymnasium where the saints would try to outdo one another in acts of service and giving to the poor and in all of these spiritual disciplines. Martin Luther himself you know, monks in that day and age, they didn't wear a, a whole lot. They had this pretty much a single cloak that they would wear. One time he fasted for so long out in the winter cold that he had to be dragged back inside and, and put into his chambers. And these were the extent, and it was very common that, that people would go to in that time. No one felt sure of their status before God. There was no certainty, so what did they do? Well, they grasped at anything. Here's another prime example. Martin Luther's protector, Frederick of Saxony, who would have been kind of like a, an overseer, a, a governor uh, of that day and age in a sense, political ruler, he owned a massive collection of relics, okay? A bunch of relics that people from all over Germany would just flock to see. Here is an actual description from the pamphlet that was put out describing what was on that list, what was on that massive collection. The collection included one certified thorn from the crown of Christ, one tooth from St. Jerome, one wisp of straw from Christ's manger, one strand of Jesus' beard, and one twig from Moses' burning bush.
if you went to church, if you went to the Wittenberg church where all of this was displayed, it was on full display for anyone to, to walk through and see if you paid the price, you could reduce your time in purgatory or grandma's time in purgatory, your choice, by 1,902,202 years and 270 days. Or so it was said. I don't understand the conversion rate. But the thing is, you could never know how much time you were supposed to serve in purgatory to begin with. So even this was no guarantee. Did you do enough good works? Did you fast long enough? Well, maybe you went two days, maybe three, but couldn't you have pushed yourself a little harder? Couldn't you have gone four days? If you'd mustered your willpower, how many relics was enough? How many pilgrimages was enough? There's just no way to know. And that right there is precisely the problem with relying on our own works, our own efforts, our own moral striving. There is no way to know. You can never know when enough is enough. Just a moving target. It's a wing and a prayer. So what do we do? We live in a constant state of anxiety and fear, frantically putting in as much spiritual elbow grease as we can in the hopes that maybe the big guy upstairs will take notice. But Paul tells us this in verse 28. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. God declares us righteous, which is to say He acquits us of our sins, not because of how good we are, but because of how good He is. He declares us righteous not because of how good we are, but because of how good He is. In God's economy, our moral sweat isn't acceptable currency. Only the shed blood of Jesus will do. So back to the all-important question, am I enough? Are you enough? If you ask the world, they'll tell you yes, unequivocally, yes. But if we're honest with ourselves, in any given situation, if we ask the question in all sincerity, could I have done more? Could I have pushed a, a little bit harder? Could I put in a, a few more hours at work? Could I have held my temper just, you know, a little bit more? Could I have had more, more patience? Could I have, have tried harder? The answer to that question is always going to be a resounding yes. Which means that on our own, we are in fact never enough. But the good news for you and me is that Jesus is. Jesus is enough because Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Because of Jesus, God declares us righteous and good. He declares us enough. He justifies us by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, apart from our works. And if we believe that, we too can have peace with God. 
the next time you find yourself asking that, that nagging little question, am I enough? Or even just find yourself repeating that word, enough. May you reject the lie that your enoughness depends in any way upon you. And may you rest in the promise that Jesus is enough today, tomorrow, and always. Amen. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's Pastor K J. O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen.